Classically, the Eightfold Path of the Buddha, which Joseph described the other night, is known as the Middle Way. It's the Middle Way in many different senses. The first way we can see it as the Middle Way is that the Eightfold Path delineates a path that lies between two extremes. One extreme being that of asceticism or self-mortification, and the other extreme being one of indulgence or overindulgence. On the side of extreme asceticism or self-mortification, we have or we can find a lot of the physical practices that were found in India in those days people trying to liberate their soul or find freedom of the heart, of the mind, through torturing the body or tormenting the body, putting it under extreme duress, thinking that somehow doing that would provide a bridge to liberation, that something within one would become free in that means. It also means a kind of self-mortification of the mind, which may be seen as being perhaps more prevalent in our own time, in our own culture, more prevalent than these extreme physical practices, to try to punish oneself, to torture oneself mentally through the forces of guilt trying to assume control or responsibility over those things that we cannot control and should not feel responsible for. That's one whole side, self-mortification or asceticism, thinking that by torturing oneself, tormenting oneself physically or mentally, we will find freedom. And then the other extreme, the other side, is that of indulgence or overindulgence, means being very complacent, being driven by desire, not having a sense of restraint or boundary, simply doing that which appears to offer pleasure and happiness. In the Buddha's life, he himself went from one extreme to the other, having been born a prince, leaving home, renouncing home, and undergoing severe ascetic practices until at the end of that period he came to the decision that neither extreme was actually giving him what he wanted, which was an unconditioned kind of happiness. It was a happiness and a sense of peace that was not bound to or dependent on any condition at all. He was not finding freedom through either of those two extremes. So that's one way in which the Eightfold Path can be seen as the middle way. It's direct, and it's complete, and it doesn't fall into one side or another. Rather than tormenting the body or tormenting the mind, rather than getting lost and complacent through indulgence, 
we forge a path that is based on mindfulness, on clear seeing, on comprehension, on understanding. So it is the middle way. It's also considered to be the middle way in terms of two views, two extreme views that people can easily tend to hold. One of these views is that there's something solid or secure or substantial to be found somewhere, somewhere in this world of the senses, in this world of conditions. Somewhere there is something we can hold on to. And if we fall into this view, if we are motivated by this view, then what we find is that we grasp and we cling to a world of appearance, a world of change. And so there's conflict and there's suffering. In this worldview, things matter a lot. Getting what we want matters a lot because it seems to hold the promise of being substantial, something we can hold on to. And then the other extreme view on the other side is the view that nothing matters at all, that everything is just void or kind of blank, that the world is simply chaos. If we fall into this view, we're motivated by this view, then what easily happens is a paralysis of the spirit, where we don't care about anything. Everything is empty anyway, and so what difference does it make? Why do anything? Why act? Why move towards freedom? The path that is described by the Buddha, the middle path, does not fall to either of these two extremes. It's based on the understanding that things do happen in this world. It's not just empty or blank. And they happen according to certain laws, such as the law of karma. And yet the things that happen are fleeting and insubstantial. They arise in accord with the laws of nature, and they pass away in accord with the laws of nature. So it is neither extreme to feel that there's going to be something solid or substantial, or to feel that nothing matters. When, through the power of our awareness, we perceive the emptiness of self, or we perceive, perceive the insecurity inherent in our lives, in this body, in this mind, when we perceive primarily the transient nature of all of our experience, then we see that there's nothing to hold on to, and we grow in wisdom, we grow in understanding. When through the power of our awareness we perceive relatedness, when we understand the relationship of things according to these laws, that it's not happening in a vacuum, it's not happening randomly, that there is a relationship between one moment and the next, between the mind and the body, between ourselves and others, then through the power of this awareness, we grow in the forces of love and compassion. So the path is said to be like the two wings of a bird, on one side being wisdom, and the other side being this force of love and compassion. Both needed, both essential, to provide the proper balance. I think this sometimes seeming paradox in the Dhamma 
is expressed very well in the line by T.S. Eliot in the poem Ash Wednesday, in which he says, Teach us to care and not to care. It's right there, just in that one line. This is what we learn. We learn to care and we learn not to care. I'd first like to talk about the ways in which we learn not to care. This doesn't mean that we learn to withdraw or to pull away or to be indifferent. The words can be very confusing. To use a word like detachment may imply a cold or a hard state of mind. And yet it doesn't actually mean that. The quality of detachment is that it can bear anything, it can be open to anything, it can be with anything, with acceptance, because there's no fear. There's no desire coloring our relationship to what is happening. And so we are able to be with anything at all, everything. We can come close to every aspect of what can be known to us. That's the power of detachment. To dwell in a state of detachment is to know the peace of silence. It's a silence when the mind isn't reaching out to hold on or reaching out to push away or to pull away in fear. There's no movement of the mind in that way. It's in repose. It's in peace. The Thai teacher that I mentioned the other night in Ajahn Chah has a very famous quote in which he likened the meditative state to a still forest pool. In the quote he says that many wonderful and strange animals come to drink at the pool, but the pool remains still. This is the happiness of the Buddha. So it's not a state in which nothing happens in which one simply vegetates. There are wonderful and rare and precious and extraordinary things that happen of all varieties. But the pool remains still. The mind and heart remain still. They remain quiet. And this is the happiness of the Buddha, which is very different than the happiness of getting what we want, which lasts for a while and then goes away or the happiness of having a sense of pride in accomplishment, which lasts for a while and then we forget. The happiness of being close to someone until the situation changes. It's a very different kind of happiness altogether. So we learn not to care in that we can be with anything, anything at all, and still have a sense of inner poise, inner happiness. We learn not to care in the sense that we develop the power of equanimity. When we look at our lives truthfully, with a lot of honesty, what we see is that there is a continual, constant succession of different factors, different ways in which we're being impacted by the world, in which we're impacting the world. Sometimes there's pleasure and sometimes there's pain. 
Sometimes there's gain, sometimes loss. Sometimes there's praise, and sometimes there's blame. Sometimes there's fame, and sometimes there's infamy, or simply neglect, being unknown. Constantly, constantly, these are revolving. This is how our lives are. These vicissitudes, these changes, are in constant motion. We have pleasant and painful sights, pleasant and painful taste sensations, pleasant and painful mind states that go on and on without our being able to control them, that happen according to their own nature. We can see that even in sitting here for 15 minutes. How many changes? Now there's tingling, it's so nice. Now there's itching, we hate it. Now there's this, now there's that. In this constant rotation of pleasure and pain, we don't need to be holding on and we don't need to be pushing away. There's a balance that's possible, which again is not a state of indifference or withdrawal. To withdraw or to feel indifference is actually a very subtle kind of ill will a subtle kind of aversion. It's like impatience in a way. Rather, it's a very full experience of what's happening, but with this sense of balance, knowing that it's out of control, knowing that it will continually change. This balance brings acceptance and it brings wisdom. There's a story that I tell sometimes about Joseph and I and some other friends, Jack Cornfield, who also teaches here at times, amongst them, going on a hike in California some years ago. We had decided, this group of people, to hike into this national park for some days, and then at the end of three or four days, to turn around and come back along the same path we had followed in, so to repeat our steps. On the third day, Jack and I happened to be walking together. It was a day of many, many hours of solid, unremitting downhill walking. We were walking, walking, walking. And all of a sudden, Jack and I were struck, seemingly struck, by this simultaneous realization. (laughs) And we both just stopped in our tracks and turned to one another. And Jack said to me, In a dualistic universe, downhill can mean only one thing. (laughs) And he was right, because the very next day, which was the day that we turned around, it was many, many, many hours of uphill walking. We live in a dualistic universe of pleasure and pain, and up and down, gain and loss, praise and blame, continually, constantly changing. If we only want one without the other, we are in the wrong universe. (laughs) Because this is how it is. And to fight it, to deny it, is to live half-heartedly. To be able to be at peace with it, to accept it, to move skillfully and gracefully throughout it, is to live with a lot of beauty a lot of happiness in our lives. 
There's a story from the Buddha's time in which he talked about this somewhat. Story happened when this particular man came to the monastery because he wanted to understand something more about the Buddha's teaching. He came one day and came upon a particular monk named Sariputra, who was an extremely learned monk and very intellectual, took a lot of delight in the theoretical aspect of the practice. The man came up to Sariputra and asked him for some teachings. And Sariputra, because he took such a delight in all of this, began talking on and on and on and on and on about all these different mind states and Buddhist psychology and how it all fit together. And the man just became furious and he stomped away. And he came back another day and he came upon this monk who was sitting silently in meditation. And he asked him for some teaching, some explanation of what the Buddha taught. And the monk didn't want to break his, his silence, his meditation. And so he said nothing. And again, the man became furious and he stomped away. The man came back the third day and he came upon another monk, disciple of the Buddha's, named Ananda. And Ananda, having heard what had happened on the first day, and what had happened on the second day, it is said, took great care to deliver just a moderate-length discourse. And the man said to him, how can you treat so sketchily these matters which are so profound? And he became furious, and he stomped away. <laughs> Someone went to the Buddha himself and reported this is what happened on the first day. This is what happened on the second day. This is what happened on the third day. What do you think, O Buddha? And the Buddha said, there's always blame in this world. If you speak too much, some people will blame you. If you say too little, some people will blame you. If you say just a moderate amount, some people will blame you. Our lives are a constant transition between praise and blame and gain and loss and pleasure and pain. And this is how it is. To hope for a life in which there is only praise, in which we will never be blamed, it's not going to happen. In which there's only pleasure and no pain. It just cannot be. So we learn not to care in the sense that we can be with all of this the pleasure and the pain, and the change between pleasure and pain, and back to pleasure. With the faculty of equanimity, with balance, with fullness, with richness, we learn not to care. And we learn not to care, in a sense, about the practice or the process itself. Another way of saying this is that we learn to be patient. I can remember at one point going up to one of my teachers some time into, into my practice, some many months after I'd begun. I considered this teacher a very compassionate and loving figure. I went up to him one day after sitting I kind of looked him in the eye and I said, 
isn't there an easier way? It's almost as though I had the impression that if I could only catch him off guard, I would force him to admit that, in fact, there was a far easier way, and that for some strange reason, I was sitting there struggling and trying to, to pull it together. I can remember that moment of looking into his eyes. What I saw there in response to my question was a sense of timelessness, that this process had been going on probably for many lifetimes, and that my experience of one afternoon sitting, which led me to frustration, was like the tiniest little particle of time. It is truly a timeless practice. Time is simply not a factor. If we are suffering or we're unhappy in some way because of our ignorance, then all we can do is one step after another, one moment after another, try to eradicate that ignorance, try to see clearly. Time is an irrelevant factor. It's not a question of doing it by tonight. It will happen whenever it happens. It's like we can't make flowers grow faster by willing them to shoot up fast. We can plant the seed, we can cultivate it, we can nurture it, we can take care of it, and in its own time, whenever that is, the flower will come. To be patient, to allow things to follow their own nature, not to care so dreadfully about getting results right now, having a sense of gratification right now. The Buddha talked about filling the mind with drop after drop of mindfulness in just the same way that we might take a bucket and fill it one drop at a time. If we do that, if we persist, and if we are true to that process, the bucket will get filled. The mind will overflow with mindfulness, with all of those qualities. If just one moment after another, we will add another drop, just one more drop, and then another. It's not anything more esoteric or complex than just that. One drop, and then the next. To do that, and to be patient, to allow it to unfold. The Buddha is quoted as saying that it is better to have one moment of wisdom, of seeing truly, than it is to have an entire lifetime of delusion, of ignorance. Just one moment is so precious, of feeling oneself in harmony with how things actually are. So we add one moment, and then another, and then another. In all of these ways, we learn to disentangle from our normal sense of ambition, of wanting, of impatience. We learn to relinquish. And very steadfastly, one moment after another, actually do it, actually do the work. 
So we learn not to care, not to care in the old way. And then we learn the other side. We learn to care quite a lot. This doesn't mean the sense of attachment, of grasping and needing and clinging. We learn to care in the sense of incredible and immaculate fullness of being, in the sense of very full awareness. There was a time when I was in Burma practicing a couple of years ago. It was the rainy season then. And it wasn't even like rain. It was something beyond anything I'd ever known. It was just sheets of water pounding out of the sky. And it just rained and rained and rained every day. The entire atmosphere was mildewed. Clothes would sometimes take weeks, take weeks to dry. My pillow mildewed, my sheet mildewed. So getting into bed at night was a basic renunciation. <laughs> my watch band mildewed right off of my arm. The whole atmosphere was, was dank and heavy and, and wet and dark. During that time, Upanditu was giving a series of lectures about the Satipatthana Sutta, which is the particular discourse of the Buddhas that the practice is based upon. There's a word in that discourse which is almost always translated as effort, as diligent effort. Nupanditu was feeling somewhat dissatisfied with this translation. He was looking for another word that he thought would evoke the actual meaning better. He came up with the word ardency, to be ardent, to be incredibly ardent, not to be hesitating, not to be holding back, to be transcending all considerations and really abandoning oneself into a task, to be ardent. He likened this state to a fire. It's like a fire that can burn up all obstacles because it is so intent, it is so full and complete. He talked about the mind, talked about the being, and what it's like when certain states are predominant, states of greed and hatred and delusion, what it's like within us, what do we actually experience. He talked about what the Buddha said, which is that when these states are strong, when there are major experience through which we are seeing reality, then the inner atmosphere is a lot like that outer atmosphere in the rainy season in Burma. Within us, there's this heaviness, there's this darkness, this dankness, this mildewy <laughs> quality. And we can feel that. We can see that for ourselves when one of those states is very strong and we take a look within. This is what we experience. He talked about ardency as being like the fire that can dry out all of those corners, 
so that the inner environment becomes crisp and clear and light rather than that heaviness, that darkness. It's the quality of ardency. Each of us here is very fortunate, no matter what our life situations may be like, even to have the capacity that we have to think about being free in a way that is not completely conditioned by mundane reality. That's an extraordinary blessing in this world. For some people, being free, their ultimate sense of being free, because of the conditions in which they live, means to have enough to eat, or to be able to choose a job, or to be able to get a passport and move from country to country. To be able to vote. All of these things can mean a lot to people. Very few people can afford the luxury to think about being free beyond the mind and body, be free beyond convention, to be free not needing anything at all outside of ourselves. Very few people. To even be thinking in those terms is extraordinary. And because it is so fortunate, because it is so extraordinary, it is important to honor that with a sense of ardency, a sense of completeness, to truly care about what we are doing and how well we are doing it, how we are crafting our lives. In this space of learning to care, we can see the meditative process as a skill. It's not just chaos. It really is like an art form or like a science. There's a way to do it that is eloquent and that is in harmony. It's as though, as artists, the mind is our medium, the mind and body, and the relationship is our medium. And we nurture this skill, we care for this skill, and we develop it as best we can. Anyone can develop this art form. It's not as though some people are born with a capacity for it and other people are not, although sometimes in the middle of a dreadful sitting, it's hard to believe that. But really, anybody can do it. Anyone who is earnest, anyone who truly cares, about seeing it done, can do it. One only needs to be alive and intent on having it done. It's not easy, but it's possible to truly develop this craft. When I was sitting here in Bari with Upandita several years ago, I would at the end of different sittings, write down what I had experienced in the sitting. At the end of different walkings, I would write down what I had experienced in the walking. And I would go into the interview ready to describe my experience. I very rarely even got to pick up the notebook. 
Sometimes I would go in and we would bow as is customary. And the process of bowing, I had much longer hair then, and it would fall in front of my face. And I would reach up and just push my hair back. And Upandita would look up and say, did you note that? And I'd say, no. (laughs) Out, try again. (laughs) Come in the next day, still all prepared to deliver my experience in sitting and walking. Come in and I'd bow, I'd reach for my notebook. He'd say, did you note that? I'd say, no. (laughs) Start again. Sometimes I would walk in and he would say, tell me how you put on your shoes. Tell me everything you observe in putting on your shoes. What intentions, what, what movements, what sensations? Tell me what you observe when you wash your face. Tell me what you observe when you look at your watch. Tell me what you observe when you brush your teeth. And each day this would be a surprise. I'd still come in all prepared to talk about my sitting and walking. <laughs> and each day it was a new thing. Well, <laughs> and so it went until I got this extremely powerful sense of each and every moment of the day as being a precious form of meditation, as being equally valuable. Every step I took to get to the meditation hall, and it took me an hour to get from the annex to the meditation hall, was as important as anything that happened in the sitting to see it as a craft, as a skill. Not a skill in in a formal sense of having, of assuming a formal posture or walking back and forth, but that quality of presence, no matter what is going on, each and every moment. It was an amazing experience. And so we learned to care very much about the quality of how we are doing things whether we are present or not. Joseph once used the example. He said that sometimes when he started to be mindful in the act of brushing his teeth, he would realize that he was holding on to his toothbrush as though it were a jackhammer, as though we were about to leap out of his hand and attack him. We use very inappropriate energy sometimes. We can move throughout the day being very off balance. This is something we can become aware of if we bring mindfulness to all of these different situations. How really are we being in this moment? What are we feeling? What are we experiencing? It's very intense and very important to be able to bring this level of caring to it. We learn, we learn to care in the sense of trying to aim the mind appropriately, not to miss, not to be sloppy, to really develop and cultivate this craft until it becomes more and more natural, more and more a part of ourselves. There's a particular balance that is talked about a lot in the practice between different mind states, each of which can sustain us, each of which is beneficial to us, we learn to care in the sense of learning to bring them into balance, to watch for that, to work with that. 
A sense of faith or trust is one of the things that's developed in the practice. The quality of faith is something that allows us to draw near to things, allows us to be willing to experience things without pulling back. But if there's too much faith and not enough wisdom, not enough understanding, then there's the danger of being quite gullible. There's a kind of faith that's talked about, which they call bright faith, which happens when we meet a person who inspires us or we go to a certain place, and the place itself arouses an energy so that our hearts feel very full and our minds feel very open. It's a very beautiful experience. But if the faith that we experience is not supported by our own experience of what is true, then it's unverified. It's something that we're just taking someone's word for or believing without scrutinizing it for ourselves. And so too much faith and not enough wisdom is a state of imbalance. We can easily become gullible. Too much wisdom and not enough faith is also considered to be a state of imbalance. That one can become very dry, and the the textual word is hypocritical. We can know what is correct, know what is right action, for example, know what to do, and not have that spark of faith that leads us to actually doing it. And so it can be a very dry state to have too much wisdom and not enough faith. We can have too much energy in the practice. And this is something that is very common to experience, where the energy builds and builds and builds, and there's not enough quiet, there's not enough composure to balance it out. So it builds and builds and builds and gets less focused and less focused until it becomes restlessness. We can have too much quiet in the practice, too much concentration, where the mind gets quieter and more settled, but there's not enough energy, there's not enough alertness to balance it out. And so we get quieter and quieter and quieter, and then we fall asleep. This is what happens constantly. Continual change in that way. We learn to develop the skill, the very precise skill, of continually bringing these elements into balance through clear and powerful awareness. We bring them into balance by being mindful of just how things are. We bring them into balance by having the sense of continuity. Mindfulness, or observing power, doesn't mean just to be with what's going on in a a casual or offhand manner. A literal translation of that word means to leap onto the object of the present moment, to jump on it, to fall into it, to suffuse it, not a sidelong glance and then being gone, but to cover it, to really go into it. So it's said that mindfulness is like the mind or the attention following the object like flowing water. It's observing power which follows 
the object the way a stream of water would flow towards it, flow into it. It takes a high degree of motivation to do this moment after moment. And if we do it, it will bring those qualities, those faculties into balance over and over and over again. So we learn to care in a sense of accomplishment, doing the practice well. This doesn't mean having good experiences, which is what we tend to confuse it with. You might sit with knee pain for a good long time. It might not become bliss and white light. But you can have intent and clear and balanced mindfulness of that knee pain. And this is very skilled and accomplished meditation. We tend to confuse these two quite a lot. So no matter what is happening, even if it seems tedious, even if it seems conventional, even if it seems boring, if we are carefully aware of it, with this sense of intentness, with this this kind of skill, then it is very good practice. And then finally we learn to care in the sense of loving care or loving kindness, which is the quality of metta, which you have undoubtedly seen up above the front entrance. And if you've received any notes from any of the staff, they're often signed metta. The word metta is derived from the word mitta, which means friend. Metta as a quality of being means being a friend, a friend to oneself and a friend to others. It means generating a feeling of loving care. The quality of loving care in our minds opens up many possibilities. Buddha actually taught a particular meditation, which I'll do tomorrow morning, to cultivate the quality of loving kindness or of metta. He taught it as an antidote to fear, because fear as a mind state tends to give us tunnel vision. We get a sense of constriction. We get a sense of extreme limitation, that what is happening now is going to be the way it's going to stay. And we can't see alternatives. We can't see other possibilities. We get tighter and tighter and tighter. That's the state of fear. Loving-kindness is the opposite of this. It's a state of expansiveness. It's a state of openness where we can see many possibilities over and over again. I once did a class in stress reduction. One of the exercises in the class one day was the instructor put a series of six dots on the blackboard. And he asked the people in the class to think, if they could think of a way of connecting all of these dots without lifting the chalk off the blackboard and with single strokes, not going back and forth and back and forth. And people became absolutely deranged. (laughs) 
going up to the blackboard with the chalk and trying to figure out some way of connecting these dots. It, by the end of the class, not a single person could do it. And so the instructor walked up, he took the chalk, and he used the entire medium of the blackboard. He went outside the boundaries of the six dots, which no one had thought to do. He just did these wide sweeping strokes and he connected the dots. No one had thought to go outside the little box that was made by the dots. No one even considered the rest of the blackboard, that empty space. A state of fear, a state of desire, gives us tunnel vision. A state of loving kindness opens up the mind to so many possibilities, so many varieties of ways of being. Because as a state of mind, it is gentle, it's expansive, and it's, it's resilient. There's a flexibility and a tenderness there. It's also very strong. When we talk about developing the quality of loving-kindness, it's not in the sense of, of a should, of a dictum, but it's rather recognizing and opening up to our own very great and real potential, not just living out of habit, of constriction, constraint. There's a quote in Newsweek some years ago. They had interviewed Miss Kentucky of 1938-1939. Miss Kentucky of 1938 said, I'm so tired. I'm so tired of smiling. This is like 50 years, you know, of smiling for the camera. Sometimes when people think about cultivating a feeling of loving kindness, of being a friend, we think about that kind of artificiality, that frozen smile for the camera, rather than recognizing it as a very real strength. It's like a power we can develop. So it's not an image of repression, but it's rather an awareness of new possibilities. It's not easy, but it is possible. There was a time about a year ago, a little over a year ago, when Joseph was here sitting and I was here teaching. Just on the last day of his retreat, when he was coming out of retreat, we received a letter from somebody. It was a very angry letter, blaming us for different things and different decisions and arguing and very much one of those communications that is laying blame. You know, you did this wrong, you did that wrong, you never considered this, and that's your fault, and that's your fault, and that's your fault. We got this letter, and I read it. Went throughout the day, doing what I was doing. And I noticed in my mind this buildup of resentment and tension throughout the day as I thought of that letter. And I began in my mind writing letters in response. Like, that's your fault, and that's your fault, and that's your fault, and you're to blame. And This was just playing through my mind. It just so happened that night that somebody brought along a Tibetan Lama 
Tibetan teacher to visit. This Lama had lived in India in a cave for a number of years, about 15 years. And he was a master at the Tibetan practice of tummo, of raising the body heat through mind power, through concentration. There were some scientists in America who wished to study that and try to understand how one could control the body in that way through use of the power of mind. And so this monk was asked if he would consider coming to America and being tested for research purposes. Somebody brought him to Boston, where he went immediately to the hospital, and he was tested for a few days. I guess he mostly sat around and meditated, and people kept taking his temperature, (laughs) seeing what was going on. And then somebody brought him out here for a visit. He walked in this place, and he looked around, and he said, this place, it seems so different from the rest of America. (laughs) Because all he'd seen was this one hospital in Boston. And we talked to him for a while. He had a, a young, very articulate translator with him. And the translator started telling us that this monk was considered very unusual in the Tibetan system of practice because he had not done any of the preliminary practices that are normally done before this particular concentration and raising the body heat, that somehow he had become an acknowledged master of this advanced practice without doing the preliminary practices or the preliminary study, which they also considered essential. So we asked the translator to ask the Lama if he had any idea about why this might be the case. And the Lama said in reply that when he had been younger, he'd been in Tibet, he'd been a guerrilla, fighter. He'd killed many people, he'd tortured many people, he'd inflicted a lot of harm. Then he was captured by the Chinese, put into prison, where he underwent a lot of torture. At some point in that process, he made a decision. He decided not to add hatred and anger and bitterness towards the Chinese on top of the physical pain he was suffering. In a Buddhist context, we would say that he saw the fruit of his past actions. He saw his previous karma coming back in this form. But even if you don't believe that, even if that isn't a model that you agree with, you can understand, we can all understand how someone outside of ourselves can only inflict physical pain. They can't make us hate them. They can't make us feel anger. And he decided that the anger and the bitterness and the hatred was only going to make his suffering worse. It was not going to ease it. It was not going to change the Chinese. It was not going to help his situation. It was only going to make his agony worse. And so he worked very hard with forgiveness, with loving kindness, with compassion and acceptance, feeling that it was the result of his own past action. 
And he said he thought that the reason he was able to advance so phenomenally quickly in his meditation practice was because of that decision, was because of the mind states that he attempted to cultivate based on that understanding. As this monk was talking, I began getting these flashes in my mind of this letter that I'd spent all day writing, saying, it's not my fault, it's your fault. (laughs) And that's your fault, and that's your fault, and on and on it went. There's a very famous quote from the Buddha in which the Buddha said, hatred can never cease by hatred. Hatred can only cease by love. To take a situation which is full of anger, full of hatred, and to add more hatred to it is never going to bring it to an end. All it can do is inflame it. To take a situation that is full of anger and add to whatever degree we can, whatever we are capable of, some feeling of loving kindness or understanding can bring it to an end. This is what I remembered in that time, in that situation. This is why we take the trouble to actively try to cultivate the force of loving-kindness within us so that more and more this can come alive for us in different situations where we're being challenged, where we're having difficulty. To actually practice it and establish it as a way of being for us to learn to really care about ourselves and to express that care for ourselves in the meditation practice, in the very fact that we undertake it sincerely and we we execute it, we perform it, and in the way that we do it, with the delicacy and the non-judgmental aspect, looking at our own experience, and to learn to care for others, to care for this world, to see that we do not live in a vacuum and that to the best of our ability we can transcend what might be conditioning, what might be habit and actually develop this feeling of loving-kindness. If we can keep that strong intention in the mind, then later on in different situations it will spring up and we'll feel a sense of of guidance or clarity. We'll feel a sense of inspiration rather than anger, rather than fear. I'd like to close with a quote from the Buddha in which he said, To the good-hearted there is wisdom. To the wise there is good-heartedness. And wisdom and goodness are declared to be the best things in this world. To consider our practice and to consider our lives as dedicated to the development of wisdom and good-heartedness. Let's sit together for a few moments. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org.
www.org slash donate.